0: Okay, everyone, I think we'll get started. Uh, Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt. My name is Judy Cooper. I'm coordinator of the public programs here, and I encourage you on your way out to pick up a copy of Compass, our news and events calendar, and any program flyers that are back there on the table. We have lots of wonderful authors coming here um, in the next few months, and I don't want you to miss any of them. So... It's this is the first of our fall writers live program and we're programs and we're delighted to welcome David Stewart back to the Pratt Library. David, as you know, is an attorney and an historian, and he's the author of three very well received nonfiction books The Summer of Seventeen Eighty Seven, Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson, and the Fight for Lincoln's legacy and American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America. And this is David's fourth time here at the Pratt Library. We've hosted um, programs for him for all three of his nonfiction books. And this new one, The Lincoln Deception, is a mystery novel. It's based on facts and real characters from the Lincoln assassination and its aftermath. In 1900... Thirty-five years after the assassination, John Bingham, a former congressman from Ohio, is dying. He was the prosecutor of John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators. And on his deathbed, he tells his physician that Mary Surratt revealed a secret about the case. But he does not reveal the secret. And so his doctor, Jamie Fraser, sets out to find the truth accompanied by uh, a man named Speed Cook, who is a, a, a black man. and This is 1900. Uh, he's college educated and a former professional baseball player. Um, these two men, Fraser and Cook, are a very unlikely pair. And they have more than their share of adventures and misadventures as they try to unravel the, the Lincoln deception. Um, it's a very clever and compelling book, and I think it's one that both history buffs and mystery lovers w- are going to love. And David Stewart is going to—he's not going to tell you the whole story, but he's going to—he's <laughs> going to tell you um, about Fraser and Cook and um, and and how he came up with these uh, these two characters. So please welcome David Stewart.
1: Thank you very much, Judy, and uh, I'm glad she's made clear I can't tell you the secret. Um, It's just, yeah, and that's really important. Um, Before I start, though, uh, a brief commercial. A bunch of us down in the D.C. area and from Baltimore as well have been involved in starting an online book review because we are dismayed at the death of book reviews in newspapers and magazines, and so we post new reviews every day. We have feature articles about the world of books. Um, it's a, been an all-volunteer operation. For, we've been up for two and a half years. Um, and it's, uh, I'd love it if you guys would give it a, a look. I have bookmarks to help remind you of it, so I'll pass them around. Okay. That's the end of the commercial. Um, as Judy suggested, uh, this is my first published novel uh, after doing the three historical narratives um, and it did grow out of research I did for one of the books, the the impeachment trial book, Impeached, uh, about the Andrew Johnson case. Uh, it is still, however, very much a, a work of fiction. Um, the characters, the plot, the settings, uh, all did come from uh, imagination. Um, I went to the places when I could, uh, although the internet is an amazing place if you're want to see what something looks like someplace in the world where you want to put a scene, they probably have a photograph up um, somewhere. Um, And uh, I did try to follow the the rule of historical fiction that I most uh, support, which is you're allowed to make up a lot. But the things that people know you really shouldn't change or shouldn't make up. And this is distilled in a simple rule that Lincoln has to be tall. I I think to sort of get you in the mood for the book, uh, what I would like to talk about to start with is the Booth conspiracy and comparing it to other presidential assassinations. Um, As you know, we've had four successful assassinations, obviously Lincoln, uh, also James Garfield in 1881, uh, William McKinley in 1901, uh, and then John Kennedy, uh, and we're just coming up to hit the 50th anniversary of his assassination, and there's going to be lots of books coming out about that. Um, and there are some interesting contrasts between the Lincoln assassination and these other three, starting with the assassins themselves. Um, this is Charles Guiteau, who killed um, Garfield. Uh, Leon Chogage, the anarchist who shot McKinley, and, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald, um, Kennedy's assassin. Um, All of them were nobodies. Um, They had left a very light footprint on the sands of the world until the moment of the assassination. Um, None has ever been proved to be part of a conspiracy. Um, Putting aside the Kevin Costner movie for a while, about uh, Oswald, uh, all involved an attack on the president, but on no one else. It was simply an attempt to kill the president. Now, as soon as I want to go in public and say that, I discovered that a fellow I know has got a book coming out claiming that Oswald was actually trying to kill John Connolly. And he killed Kennedy by mistake. So we'll see how history judges that theory. Um, But then there's Booth. And he's very different from these other three fellows. First of all, he's a lot better looking, um, the most obvious point. Uh, And he was certainly not nobody. Um, He was a scion of really the most prominent theatrical family in the country at the time. His father had been a great theatrical star, Junius Booth, his brothers, Edwin Booth, and also Junius Booth, Booth, Jr., were similarly stars, and John Wilkes Booth was a, a noted actor of his time. Um, we tend to have theatrical families like the Barrymores and even the, the Baldwin brothers in our time, or the, maybe the Halls now, and the Booths were really uh, celebrities. Uh, John Wilkes Booth probably could not walk down a major street in a major city in America and not be recognized. Um, and one of the things I came upon in scrounging around about this is this wonderful photograph of the three Booth brothers. John Wilkes is on the left um, without his mustache, and about six months before the Lincoln assassination, they put, uh, staged a benefit performance of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which is, of course, an assassination story, And in a wonderful inversion of—oops—when we lose here, inversion of the the real uh, life experience, uh, Wilkes played the loyal one, Mark Antony, and his his brothers played the assassins, Brutus and Cassius. Um, Starting with the night of April 14, 1865, the night of the assassination. A key part of the story that I was exploring jumps off from the fact that Lincoln was not the only target of assassination that night. Um, Booth, of course, shot him in Ford's Theater. But then another assassin went to the hotel where Andrew Johnson was staying. He'd only been vice president for a few weeks. Uh, We had no vice presidential residence at the time. That actually didn't come up until a couple of decades ago when they, uh, found the, uh, dedicated the Naval Observatory in, uh, DC to the vice president. So, um, Johnson was simply staying in a public hotel. Uh, a fellow named George Atzerodt showed up there and was supposed to kill him. Uh, he lost his nerve. He went to the bar to have a couple of drinks to reinforce his nerve and it didn't work. He just left, um, and ran up to Gaithersburg, um, Nothing Gaithersburg has ever been proud of. Um, And I have to acknowledge it it gives me some pain, especially in front of Maryland audiences. But this assassination conspiracy was a seriously Maryland activity. (laughs) Uh, Nine of the ten major conspirators were Marylanders, including Booth. Um, Another assassin attacked the Secretary of State, William Seward, in his home. Seward had suffered uh, a couple of uh, broken jaw and broke, uh, dislocated shoulder in a carriage accident just a week or so before that time. So he was in bed. He was in, in pretty bad shape, actually. Um, but the uh, attacker broke into the house, uh, broke into his bedroom, um, basically uh, pounded both of Seward's sons in the head. Um, they had serious injuries, one had a fractured skull. Um, and began slashing with a a big knife um, and slashed Seward uh, a couple times in his face and then also in his uh, arm uh, and then uh, also stabbed. There was a nurse, a a male nurse present, um, and he stabbed him a few times. And Finally, uh, the nurse kept after him. Uh, Seward's daughter tried to intervene, and the assassin did flee, uh, leaving really t- sort of a a, a a slaughterhouse uh in seward 's house it it was a terrible um situation then finally there's considerable evidence which I credit um that the assassins had Ulysses Grant on their list. Some of you may recall that Grant was supposed to attend the theater with Lincoln um, that afternoon uh Mrs. Grant prevailed upon him to leave Washington and to go to the beach. Uh, they took the train up to New Jersey, um, to the New Jersey shore, where they were going to see their children. Um, this was the tail end of the war, if you recall. Uh, he had not been with his family uh, for many months, and uh, he wanted to see his family. Uh, so he did, uh, there were a couple of incidents Mrs. Grant described in her memoirs. Uh, which she believed involved they were being stalked by a potential assassin. Um, So when you look at this picture, it's very different from the other presidential assassinations. And it emerges as not so much a simple assassination as arguably just a coup d'etat. You're really trying to decapitate the Union government, remove all of its principal leaders. Um, Booth was on the run after this uh, uh, after the shooting Uh, it took them 11 days They had some 40,000 soldiers supposedly looking for him but he still remained at large for 11 days traveling through southern Maryland finally was tracked down uh, at a farm in Virginia uh, and was trapped in a burning barn and was shot and killed there Um, but eight of his co-conspirators were tracked down uh, in the next several days, in that period, actually. Most were arrested before he was found, and they were placed on trial very quickly. Um, Four of them were hanged, and this is Lewis Powell. This is very painful for me because I was, many years ago, was a law clerk at the Supreme Court for Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell. And I find it difficult that this man with the same name was an assassin. Um, uh, Powell went by the name Lewis Payne, so I will use that name uh, otherwise. Uh, he was in many ways the uh, character that the press was focused on, one of the two characters. Um, I think largely because, to be blunt, he was so good looking. He clearly could have made a career uh, if he were around today, modeling for GQ. Uh, He was large and violent. He's the man who broke into the Seward House and left such havoc. Um, That's George Atzerott, not a candidate for GQ. Um, He was the fellow who tried to, uh, was supposed to kill uh, Vice President Johnson um, and was found uh, and arrested in Gaithersburg. Uh, David Harold was from southern Maryland. He was really a country boy and was uh, very knowledgeable about the back roads, and he was the uh, person who was really Booth's escort for his escape and stayed with him for all 11 days. When Booth was shot, Harold actually surrendered himself. Um, And then finally, in many ways, the most controversial figure, Mary Surratt. Uh, She was a middle-aged lady in her 40s. Um, She had run a uh, tavern in what was then called Surrattsville, Maryland, they changed the name after the assassination it 's now Clinton um, and it was a Confederate way station. Uh, both of her sons were involved with the Confederacy. Her older boy fought with the uh, Confederate Army in Texas. Uh, her younger son, which I'll, who I will talk about a bit was very was a spy and a courier for the secret service and uh, uh, lived many years in Baltimore. Uh, She became an object of real fascination uh, through this uh, trial period, partly because she was a woman, and women in this time are not supposed to be involved in assassinations. Uh, And uh, she and and, and Payne were the ones that uh, the press mostly focused on. They were hanged... um, these four were hanged at Fort McNair. If you go down to Washington into the Nationals Park, Fort McNair is just to the west of it. It's right on the water. And the execution site is right at the back of the tennis courts if you get a chance to go in there. Um, it doesn't look like this much anymore, um, but uh, it was uh, quite a pageant. Um, four other co-conspirators were convicted of conspiring with Booth. Uh, Samuel Arnold here was from Baltimore. Uh, uh, Michael O'Laughlin was also from Baltimore. These were the two gentlemen who were not so directly tied. Actually, there will be a third as well. Um, in fact, there's not much evidence that Arnold was even in Washington on the day of the assassination. They had been very much involved in a Scheme Booth had a month before to kidnap Lincoln and whisk him down to Richmond and hold him for ransom and exchange him either for co- Confederate prisoners of war or even for an advantageous peace. Um, they tra- staked out a route they thought Lincoln would be traveling on, uh, but it all fell apart because Lincoln changed his plans and didn't travel that route. And then events on the battlefield sort of destroyed that particular strategy. Um, we have uh, Edmund Spangler Ned Spangler was what he went by he worked at Ford's Theater and he held Booth's horse while Booth went in and did the killing Um, and then Dr. Mudd uh, Samuel Mudd of Southern Maryland his family has fought for a century to try to clear his name Uh, I won't make the obvious joke Um, but To my mind, actually, of these four, he was clearly the most involved. He actually introduced uh, Booth to the Surratts uh, and to other spies in the Confederate in Southern Maryland, and clearly uh, knew and was engaged with the Confederate Secret Service. Um, These four people were convicted uh, and sentenced to life in prison. They were imprisoned in the Dry Tortugas at Fortress Monroe, which is I have not ever been to. I've heard it's a a truly dismal place. Uh, one of them, uh, O'Laughlin, died in prison. Uh, they had periodic fevers down there. Uh, it was in the Gulf of Mexico, just off the Keys. Uh, but the other three were released in 1869, uh, right before Andrew Johnson went out of office. He pardoned all of them. Um, so that created quite a circle. I always like this... Uh, illustration that was put together in one of the magazines at the time because they put Mary Surratt in the center. Part of that, of course, is because of her, she's different, she's a female, um, but also the obsession that developed over Mary Surratt. Um, I mentioned she had run a tavern in Southern Maryland. Uh, She and her husband had run it, and she took it over. This is an older photograph of the tavern. It's still there. You can still tour it. It's a tourist official tourist site, um, and it was a way station for Confederate agents. Um, and uh, uh, she was involved in this. One of the uh, her husband had been postmaster, and then John, her her younger son, became postmaster as well. And the, it was a simple time the Confederate secret service would smuggle their messages to Surrattsville and then the Surratts would stick it in the mail. Um, and then the U S post office would deliver the uh, messages to these spies around the country. Um, she moved in late 1864 to Washington and she had a property that she, her family had owned there and she turned it into a boarding house. It's still there um, It is now the home of Walk and Roll, uh, an Asian fusion restaurant. Um, Based on the size of the restaurant inside, this is a deceptive photo. The restaurant goes on and on. They've clearly altered the interior a good deal. But the exterior is unchanged, which is kind of weird. And there is a a sign there. It's right in Chinatown. It's on 8th Street between 6th and 7th, if if you are ever curious. This became the physical center of the conspiracy. This is where many of the meetings happened, and Booth and Mary Surratt struck up an unusual friendship. Um, He was a 26-year-old matinee idol. She was a 42-year-old boarding house manager uh, described as uh, stout. Um, He had women following him down the street. When he was killed, they found photographs of Five women, at least two of whom he was engaged to marry, uh, in on his possession. But they hit it off. They were both great uh, enthusiastic Confederate sympathizers, and she was clearly an intelligent woman. And they uh, became extremely close. They had been brought together by her younger son, John Surratt. Um, He was, depending on your point of view, either the man who got away or the man who left his mother to take the fall for him because he escaped. He was the 10th conspirator. Um, He had been a Confederate agent and courier for several years. Um, He probably introduced Booth to the Confederate Secret Service. And the controversial part with Surratt has always been Where was he on the day of April 14, 1865? He claimed he was in Elmira, New York. He had gone to Canada carrying messages for the Confederate government. There was a nest of spies up in Montreal and Quebec. And that he came back to Elmira, where there was a huge prison camp, to try to figure out a way to have a prison breakout by the Confederate soldiers who were being detained there. There were several thousand there. Federal prosecutors claimed that he had come back to Washington and was there for the assassination. Um, And there was no dispute uh, about his escape. As soon as the assassination happened, wherever he was leaving from, he quickly hustled up to Canada, where he was hidden by Catholic priests, um, both, the Surratt family was a uh, very Catholic family. He'd been educated in Catholic schools. Um, he was then uh, under a false name and with a disguise, false, you know, he, he tinted his hair and he uh, grew whiskers and did, uh, wore glasses. Um, he got on a boat to Britain. From Britain he made it to France and then over to Italy. Italy. Uh, And in Italy, he signed up with the Papal Zouaves. Uh, The Papal States were still independent at this time. Uh, The nation of Italy was in the process of being formed. And this is uh, Surratt in his Zouave uniform. The Zouave uh, outfit was modeled after North African soldiers. They were just thought to be, it was just thought to be the coolest outfit. So... There were Union troops in the Civil War who wore them. There were Southern troops in the Civil War who wore them. And in Italy, they were very popular as well. So he joined the papal Zouaves. Um, And he served in them for almost a year, at which point another uh, Zouave, an American uh, from Baltimore, actually, recognized him, and turned him into the American government, to the diplomats there in Rome. Uh, it took a while to make anything happen. Finally, he was arrested by other Zouaves to be sent back to uh, America. He made an escape, which he either did or didn't involve a leap to it 23 feet down a ledge. It, there are different views of this, but he escaped somehow and then made it to Naples, where he stayed in the city jail for a couple of nights because it was the safest place to be at which point point, the trail gets a little cold here a British gentleman paid for his passage to Egypt and it took a couple of months for him to get there there were quarantines because of fever uh getting across the Mediterranean but finally he got off the boat in Alexandria Egypt and was arrested there the Americans knew he was going to be there and he was still wearing his Slav uniform, which presumably had gotten a bit ripe by then. This was now 1867. He was brought back to Washington to face trial. It was two years after the war now. And it was a very different country, of course. People wanted to put the war behind them. And he was tried in a very different way. The first eight co-conspirators had been tried in a military tribunal. Not terribly different in kind from what we use in Guantanamo these days. Um, So you had nine military officers, Union Army officers, judging their guilt or innocence, Um, not a jury of your peers and not a particularly sympathetic jury. John Surratt was tried in a civil court before a jury of Washingtonians. Washingtonians in 1867 were largely Southerners, uh, or Southern thinking people. The trial went on for two months. Um, There was a tremendous disagreement, largely over where was he on the night of April 14th. Uh, The prosecution presented 13 witnesses who said he was in Washington. And the defense presented five witnesses who said he was in Elmira. Uh, Apparently, Surratt was a bit of a clothes horse. And so all of the witnesses from Elmira were either haberdashers or tailors who all claimed that they remembered his outfit because it was so unusual. Um, after at the end of the trial, the jury hung. It was four for conviction and eight for acquittal. Uh, the prosecution ran in circles for a while and finally was unable to get itself together to try a retrial, and he walked free. Uh, stumbled around the world for a short time and ultimately made his way to Baltimore. He signed on with the Old Bay Steamship Company, for which he worked for close to 40 years before his retirement, and he died in bed in 1916. Now, the story for me begins with this man. This is John Bingham. Judy mentioned him in her introduction. Um, He was a Republican congressman from eastern Ohio, the town of Cadiz, a very small town with a huge statue of John Bingham. He was staunchly anti-slavery and was a leading figure in Congress at the time. Uh, He led the impeachment effort of Andrew Johnson. That's how I came to know of him. And he was the author of the 14th Amendment in Section 1, which protects equal protection of laws and due process of law. So we have John Bingham to thank for that part of our law and our tradition. What people often overlook was he was the lead prosecutor in the trial of the eight Lincoln co-conspirators in 1865 before the uh, military commission. He had been uh, Judge Advocate General during the war. And when I was researching the impeachment book, I read a very obscure biography of him uh, by a scholar out in Ohio, but it was the sort of book that was sort of printed on offset, you know, the the lines weren't justified on the right. Um, It was not a a major publisher. And he included in this book this episode in one paragraph that I have managed to knit into an entire book, or as the basis for a book, which was uh, when... Uh, Bingham was on his deathbed in 1900. So I've been instructed that fiction writers read from their work, which is not something nonfiction writers do, so I will read a short passage um, from that moment. Um, And this is a moment when Bingham is terribly ill and his doctor, a young man, James Fraser, comes to uh, look in on him. And and Bingham is talking. There was a week that summer, a hellish one. We had in hand the verdicts for all eight of those wretches in Booth's conspiracy. But the judgments, you see, couldn't be announced until President Johnson approved them. He coughed shallowly. After a small sigh, he resumed, his eyes bright again. I was called to Mrs. Surratt's chambers, a complaint of her daughter. After hearing the girl out, and she was... Rather hysterical, a pale whelp of the original she-lion, I informed her I couldn't help. Fraser nodded, pleased by Bingham's sudden energy and the subject of his conversation. Bingham rarely talked about his public career. Fraser knew he had prosecuted the Lincoln conspirators, securing convictions of all eight and death sentences for four. Fraser wished he had known more about the Lincoln case. The old man picked up his story. Mrs. Surratt sat there, perfectly composed in that heat, monstrous in her lack of remorse. All that was missing were snakes sprouting from her head. Mr. Bingham, said she. The verdicts are in, are they not? I assured her I could make no statement. We are to be hanged, she said. Are we not? Again, I said I could say nothing. I don't think that very Christian of you, she went on. I suppose we will be told soon enough. Bingham's eyes strayed into the middle distance. He shifted toward Fraser. Then began the most remarkable exchange. The old man shook his head. What she told me, you must understand, I was no babe in arms. I was in Congress during vicious times before the war. As Judge Advocate General, I prosecuted our disloyal men. I knew the horrors of the bloodiest war man has fought, of the horrors of which the human spirit is capable. And yet that woman unsettled my very soul. Afterward, I went to Stanton. Fraser knew about Edwin Stanton from nearby Steubenville, who had been Lincoln's Secretary of War. I never saw that great good man so vexed as when I related Mrs. Surratt's confession. Bingham's eyes drifted again to the far wall. The memory seemed to seize his entire attention. Finally, we agreed, Bingham added slowly. Her confession was too terrible. To reveal it would be to risk the survival of the Republic. Fraser wasn't sure he had heard correctly. Sir, the survival of the Republic? Bingham's eyelids slowly descended. His jaw went slack. He sagged back onto the massed pillows and his breath became shallow. Disappointed that the story had petered out, Fraser reminded himself that sleep was good for the old man. Bingham dies shortly thereafter, which is true. And this story came down from the doctor's family. That's how this scholar had come upon it. And, of course, Bingham never did tell the secret. He said that that he and Stanton agreed that they would tell no one, and now the secret would die with him. So I started wondering about this. This scene stuck in my head for two years while I was writing other books, and I wanted to write about it, but I couldn't figure out how, and certainly not in a nonfiction book because it involved a secret I didn't know. Uh, it does raise, did raise the issue for me. Was there more to this conspiracy than the accepted version that John Wilkes Booth, this crazy actor, thought it all up himself and did it all himself? What don't we know about it? Things like how did he live with no income for a year? How did his co-conspirators live with no income for a year? Then there were practical questions. How do I reinvestigate the case after 150 years? How would anybody in 1900 have reinvested the ca- reinvestigated the case after 35 years? Who's going to investigate it? Well, I figured it had to be the doctor, because he's the one who hears the, conf- the disclosure. I decided he couldn't do it by himself, because when you have a single hero, then he has to be everything. He's got to be bold, courageous, um, smart. Uh, he's almost a superman, so if you have two investigators, then you can sort of divide up the the talents, and you can also have a conversation going on, um, and you can sort of liven it up. So that's when I started poking around to see what else I could figure out. I wondered what else happened in 1900. I knew roughly. I found a few Odd things. This is Doctor Joseph Booth, also lived in Baltimore. Uh, He was John Wilkes's youngest brother. Did never acted. uh, Became a doctor later in his life. Um. He was still alive in 1900. I discovered that a nephew, Creston Clark, was alive. Was a youngish man and was an actor. Uh, There's a wonderful. The internet brings you such amazing things. I found a review of one of Creston Clark's performances during this era from Denver when he was performing King Lear, and the reviewer said that Clark played King Lear as though in apprehension that someone was about to play the ace. not quite sure what it means, but I think it's negative. Um, Of course, that's the presidential election year. You've got William McKinley running for office. Uh, this is the first time Teddy Roosevelt's on a national ticket. He the candidate for vice president of the Republican Party. William Jennings Bryan for the Democrats is the opponent. Um, we have a new bridge going up in New York. The Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge were previously built. Now the Williamsburg Bridge is going up because there's so much traffic. They have terrible backups on the bridges. Sounds familiar. Um, We're fighting a war in Asia. We're opposing an insurgency by the people in the Philippines. We had won the Spanish-American War and taken the Philippines as our right. The people in the Philippines didn't much care for that, so a bunch of them started to resist in an armed fashion, and so we worked to suppress them. Not that many things change. Um, I found this fellow. Uh, whom I had known from the Johnson book. His name's George Townsend. Uh, he was a newspaper writer, then uh, became a book writer. Uh, he has a place in Burkittsville, Maryland. It's over towards Harper's Ferry. If you're ever over there, I encourage you to uh, look for it. It's uh, Gathland State Park. Gath was a way he signed his name, G-A-T-H. It was his initials with H on the end, and it has some biblical resonance that I never quite got. Um, But Townsend became obsessed with the Lincoln assassination and wrote several books about it. Uh, And in Burkittsville, at Gathland State Park, he built this gigantic stone arch. It's in the middle of nowhere to commemorate all the uh, newspaper correspondents who died covering the Civil War. And all their names are etched in it. And (laughs) virtually nobody sees it ever. Um, Mrs. Grant was still alive still persuaded that General Grant was the target of the assassins. And Samuel Arnold, one of the original assassins, was still alive, or conspirators. Uh, He was living in Anne Arundel County at the time. So it seemed to me we had an extraordinarily rich cast of characters. For the co-investigator, the partner for the doctor, uh, I modeled him after uh, a, a real figure, a man named Moses Fleetwood Walker. There's a short biography of Walker that was written by a fellow who teaches at Towson, actually. Walker was the last black man to f- play in the b- major leagues um, between the 1880s and when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Now, there were actually some supposedly Cuban players who got in in between who were probably faking and pretending to be Cuban, um, But he was a pretty uh, significant figure. He had attended Oberlin College and the University of Michigan. Um, He wrote an extraordinary screed, uh, a a 70-page denunciation of America in 1907, basically saying that it was impossible for a black person to live in America in 1907 and that they all should move back to Africa. Um, And I thought having a character who was an extremely smart, talented, high achieving black person in America at that time, which was really the high point of our Jim Crow uh, segregation and repression, um, would create a very interesting dynamic. So once I had this all together, um, in my mind, I had just finished writing my last nonfiction book, my most recent one on Aaron Burr, and the last thing I wanted to do was go back in the library. So I started writing this, um, and it it is the fun part. You get to make things up. (laughs) What's going to happen next? Um, I found I needed to know where I was going. Some fiction writers say that they just create their characters and their characters tell them what the story is. Well, if my characters know what the story is, they keep it to themselves and I need to um, have an outline and know where I'm going. But you do get to use poetic license and it is, that's a great kind of license to have. I didn't have to do end notes and citations. I was just working on citations today for a book I'm doing on James Madison. Um, So it was a, a real hoot for me. But historical fiction, which I think is pretty popular these days, um, I think is in part because you get to explore the silences in history. You know, we really, when I'm writing a nonfiction book, I only know what people wrote down that happened. If nobody wrote it down, it didn't happen as far as I know. And you know a lot of things happened (laughs) that were really interesting. Um, So this was an opportunity uh, to try to fill in those silences. And I was sort of inspired by a book some of you may know. Uh, I, my last book was on Aaron Burr, and there's a wonderful novel about Burr that was written by Gore Vidal called Burr. And in that novel, he deals with the duel, which I dealt with in my book. And it's certain things are totally well-known, which is Hamilton made a speech, and he said that he had an opinion of Mr. Burr, Colonel Burr that was still more despicable. And we know that despicable in 1804 meant sexual perversion. And we just don't know which one. We just, what was he implying? Burr certainly never said he took great offense. He challenged them to a duel. They fought the duel. Um, and Vidal came up with a theory And he was, in interviews, he was completely straight. He said, I do not have any basis for this theory. I made it up. But his theory was that the implication was, and, and intended by Hamilton, that Burr was sleeping with his daughter. Now, Burr had only one daughter. He was a widower. His daughter had been educated terrifically well. He doted on her, and she was the center of his life. And the allegation that he had been sleeping with his daughter was a light going on in my head that would certainly drive Burr to challenge him to a duel and you can only do that in fiction I couldn't do that so this was my opportunity to do that for the Lincoln assassination and the goal is to come up with something plausible or even persuasive and I hope it I have and I hope it's as much fun for you to read as it was for me to write Thank you very much. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Yes, sir. And you made it clear it's fiction
2: <throat> based on facts.
1: Is that a question? It's a, it's a historical setting based and the historical facts we know I have included, um, and there is an author's note at the end where I identify many of the facts so the re- the curious reader can find out which things I didn't make up, but you know probably eighty percent of the book is made up because these these guys had to go off and do something, and and they and the central characters are are fictional, yes sir.
2: Um I remember when I take, took history in college and all, that um, I always wondered w- when, when Lincoln went to the movie, uh, went to the theater, <laughs> and um, there was supposed to be a guard there, right? Just one guard. And then th- th- I, I, that's what I heard was he was supposed to have gone to the bathroom, and then nobody was supposed to take his place. That, that seemed kind of like really...
1: Yeah, uh, uh, presidential security was not real well-developed at that time. Um, that is the story, that there was supposed to be a guard posted outside the door. He wasn't there, and investigators never concluded that there was anything nefarious about that and that he had no connection to the, inv- to the conspiracy. Um, those are the facts... I had to work with
0: was um is Arnold Maryland named after this this Arnold guy I don't
1: think so no oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wilkes that was, you know, for two years they kept him in Washington under, underneath um, and they, when he jumped off the stage he did not have a, he had a compound fracture. Both, you know, tibia and fibula were broken as opposed to a, a straight green, just one leg. And they said that this, when they uncovered that it was not really John Wilkes Booth that was killed in the barn.
1: Did there, you know about is, that
0: conspiracy and that he died in Nevada or something yeah, there, like there's, that? Yeah,
1: there's a long mythology uh, that Booth didn't die. There are books about Booth going off and being a cowboy. Um, there was a while in the 1920s when there was a guy who had a mummy. That he would take to county fairs and claim they were John Wilkes Booth, and and that it was John Wilkes Booth, and he would charge ten cents to come in and view him. Um, I just don't think any of that can be credited. Uh, You know, there were a lot of people, uh, you know, who saw him killed and said he was dead, and he is buried. uh, I think here.
0: <laughs> but he's not buried here. That the family took his body out of the graveyard. And that's the um, let truth. Let's see, right or long, Let God be my judge.
1: Yeah. You
0: heard about that one too.
1: I think he's, he's not here. At the Green
0: Mountain Cemetery. Well, they, they buried him someplace else, like the family plot or something.
1: Uh, there's lots of stories. Yeah. How long was the process? You know, that you took in writing the book. Off. The the actual writing took about seven months, um, which was a fascinating revelation because nonfiction books take a lot longer. <laughs> and I started questioning my career choice. Um, so, although I'm doing a book on James Madison now that is not fiction, um, but I have to write a sequel of this book. So, I will see if it's still. A seven-month process. Um, I found once I had an outline, um, it wasn't. It it was just fun. I I had fooled around with fiction before I started writing nonfiction, and I have a couple of unpublished novels. So it it wasn't a totally foreign exercise, um, and uh, uh, it was a hoot. <laughs>
2: to. just want to ask about the John Wilkes Booth plan for escape. Uh, someone was holding his horse. He ran off, uh, rode off on his horse. What was his escape plan? And if he's planning to get away, why was he, why was he committing a, a crime right in, in front of an audience where he's well-known? Why was he in disguise? Why was he was he actually planning on
1: escaping? Uh, he seems to have been planning on escaping. It was a very well-developed plan. Um, he could only get access to Lincoln in public places. I mean, he couldn't sort of make an appointment and do it in his office, and there would be a lot of guards there anyway. Um, the theater was the place he actually knew best and would not be challenged anywhere. He, was, he knew every, all the stagehands, and you know, he could walk around backstage without ever having a problem. So it was in many ways the perfect spot for Booth. It's almost like his performance. Yeah. Well, and there's certainly a performance quality and, you know, he jumps onto the stage and he yells, Six Semper Tyrannus. And many people said there was, there's even an argument about that. There's an argument about everything in the Booth case. Um, and his plan, you know, when they are, there's a very fine book by James Swanson called Manhunt about his escape, basically. And he encounters, he is assisted by a number of Confederate spies it is not an accident that he's meeting Confederate spies. Harold and he have set up this network and they are planning to do it. it it's much more difficult because he's got a broken leg. That makes the escape very difficult. Also, they apparently they went out in the uh, Potomac River and, and rode in circles for a couple of hours and then ended up back on the Maryland side when they were trying to get to Virginia. So that delayed the escape a little as well. Um, but I... You know, it is a complicated story. He wanted to, he had to do it in a public place. The theater was a natural place for him. Lincoln went to the theater a lot. Uh, He he really liked it, so you know, Booth could expect to see him there. So, um, I agree with you that it doesn't fit perfectly, but you know, he was doing the best he could, and uh, he did kill the president.
0: You mentioned that you're working on a sequel for this. I am. Without telling us the end of this, can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be covering in the sequel?
1: Yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, One of the things that happens when you do a mystery is if they want to buy it, they immediately say, of course, this is a series. And I've discovered the answer is, uh, yeah, (laughs) of course. Um, So they wanted me to sign up for three. And I wasn't sure that, you know, if how I wasn't ready to do that. Um, so we, I did sign up for two. And so the second one, I believe, and you cannot count on this because I haven't started writing it. I'm still doing the Madison book. Um, I believe that our heroes will be in France at the end of World War I. They will be in their mid to late 50s, a prime of life. And uh, they will encounter uh, historical figures and mysteries and, uh, adventures. I, uh, there are some ideas, but not ready for prime time.
0: I can't remember. Um, are you did you use the same publisher for this book as with your others, with other three?
1: No, this is a different publisher. This publisher, it's Kensington publishing. Right. They do a lot of mysteries. And so this was comfortable for them. And, uh, Simon & Schuster, not so much. I'm doing the Madison book for Simon & Schuster, so I'm sort of riding two horses.
0: Good. Any other questions?
1: We'll make this the last question.
2: Um, the, <coughs> the fact that he, he was going to kill... He, he, his main purpose was, what, revenge on Lincoln, or did he really want a different government because he really they didn't really get Johnson, and even if they got Johnson and Seward... It would still have been a Republican next in line, right? So, I mean, I don't... Was it just revenge to kill Lincoln?
1: Well, you know, we know Booth was a tremendous sympathizer with the Confederate cause, um, and he had intended to kidnap Lincoln and hold him for ransom to assist the Confederate cause. Um, He was never interviewed after the assassination. He was simply... When he was finally tracked down, he was killed, so he never had a chance to explain himself. He said six semper Tyrannus." That sounds pretty hostile towards Lincoln, assuming he said it. Um, he also uh, had a notebook which was taken off his person. Now there are folks who claim that the notebook was fabricated. It was created by union investigators. There is always a conspiracy theory inside a conspiracy theory in this situation. Um, and in the notebook he talked about the crimes of Lincoln. So Certainly there was tremendous uh, uh, rage against Lincoln. Uh, The timing of the assassination is always puzzling. Uh, Lee had surrendered five days before. Uh, There were still Confederate armies in the field, but they weren't achieving much. And it was a peculiar time. Um, So that also warrants some consideration there. You know, that we've, had, we've forgotten the conspiracy theories that they had about this case. It's 150 years old. When it was first around in 1865, 1866, Bingham claimed Jefferson Davis planned the whole thing. That's how he tried the case. Um, then there was a theory that the pope had been behind it. I'm not sure the pope knew who Abraham Lincoln was. But the Surrats were Catholic, and it was a time when a lot of people didn't like Catholics, were made were made nervous about them. So that hung around for a while. Then there was a guy named Himmelschmidt or something like that in the 1920s and 30s who came up with the theory that Edwin Stanton was behind it, that it was the Secretary of War in the Union government who was on an inside job. And since he was going to run the investigation, he could cover up his tracks. Um... So there have been conspiracy theories, um, and because it was a conspiracy. uh, And uh, so it's fertile ground for the, the novelist. Thanks very much. I'd be happy to sign any books.